Organic Aromas is dedicated to developing and promoting the most effective, safe, and most beautiful aromatherapy diffusers for applying and enjoying the true health benefits found deep within pure essential oils. Their unique and powerful diffusers are quiet and require no heat and no water. Their diffusers are made from high quality recycled wood and hand blown glass and they contain no plastic. Organic Aromas offers hand carved diffusers and recently began custom laser engraving as well. They have a complete line of pure essential oils, essential oil blends, and roll-on aromatherapy oils, which not only smell amazing, but are long-lasting. Organic Aromas products are high quality, unique, and they have a long life, which is backed by a one-year, all-inclusive parts and service warranty. I've had my diffuser for four to five years and I use it all the time and it still works perfect. Click the link in the description for a chance to win a $100 gift card, an Organic Aromas nebulizing diffuser, or a wonderful set of pure essential oils. Organic Aromas is giving away new prizes each week, so check their website to find out what they're giving away next. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Podcast. Uh, before Casey Anthony, Susan Smith, and Andrea Yates, there was Diane. On May 19, 1983, at 10.48 p.m., a young mother enters a hospital emergency bay in Springfield, Oregon. She was frantically honking her horn. When, has when hospital staff came out to see what was going on, she said that she had been carjacked and that her kids were shot. Her children, or her three children, Cheryl, eight, Christy, seven, and Danny, three, were rushed into the hospital. Christy and Danny were in the back seat and they were covered in blood. Cheryl was curled up on the floor of the front passenger seat and was almost missed by hospital staff. The mother, Diane, had to tell the hospital staff about Christy or about Cheryl. Sadly, emergency room staff declared Cheryl dead on arrival. Danny was paralyzed from the waist down and Christy had suffered a stroke that impaired her speech. When questioned by the investigators, Diane explained after work they went to visit a friend's acreage. On the way home, decided to go sightseeing along some back roads. Eventually the children fell asleep and she decided to drive home. On Old Mohawk Road, a shaggy-haired man flagged her down. She turned off the side of the dirt road, opened her car door, and stepped out of the car. The shaggy-haired man demanded her car. She refused, and then he shot her children. She faked throwing her car keys. He shot her in the arm, and then ran in the directions that she pretended to throw the keys. Diane said that she got in, started the car, and raced to the hospital. 
When investigators examined the car, they found it strange that the bloodstains were everywhere inside the car, except that the driver's seat looked clean. The children were covered in blood and Diane wasn't, even though she claimed to have been trying to sit them up and she claimed that she was applying towels to their wounds and Diane had a towel wrapped around her arm. Investigators and hospital staff noticed that she was emotionless. She didn't cry at all while she was at the hospital. Um, not really a typical reaction that they experienced in other situations like this. Usually the mother's crying and frantic and very emotional. Diane was very matter of fact while she was telling the story of what happened. When she was told that Christy had passed, Diane mentioned that her arm really hurt and asked if she would be able to go to work the next day. A really strange reaction for someone who just lost their child. The car was a used car, but it was new to Diane, and she had mentioned that she hoped that there wasn't any bullet holes in the car. Investigators were immediately suspicious. Things just didn't add up. When the hospital staff checked Diane's arm, they noticed that she had a red rose tattoo on her back with the name Nick. Diane needed surgery on her arm and was in the hospital for a few weeks, and she would visit Christy and Daddy's room often. Hospital staff and investigators started to notice that Christy's heart rate would just rapidly spike when Diane would visit. Diane's first name was Elizabeth. She went by her middle name. She grew up in a conservative family and as a child never showed any signs of troubled behavior. When she started high school, Diane became rebellious, dating older boys and dressing more provocatively wearing short shorts and showing cleavage, and I think that she went to a Catholic school. After high school, she went to Bible college, but was expelled for lewd behavior. Uh, when she was in high school, Diane began an on and off again relationship with Steve. Despite her parents' disapproval, they eloped and were married in 1973, after Steve had returned from the Navy. During her marriage to Steve, Diane had numerous affairs, which were a lot were married men. In 1978, Diane and Steve moved to Mesa, Arizona. Diane had affairs with a few of her co-workers. One affair resulted in the birth of Danny in December 1979. Steve knew that he was not the father, but he accepted the accepted the child as his own. It was a tumultuous marriage, alleged physical abuse on both sides, fighting about money, alleged infidelity. Uh, eventually, Steve and Diane divorced in 1980. Diane tried to get work as a surrogate mother. That is someone that will carry a baby with the intention of surrendering the child after birth. Um, but she failed psychiatric tests that showed her to be intelligent but psychotic. 
At some point, though, Diane was able to become a surrogate for a couple. After she had the baby, she even tried to start her own surrogate clinic with a friend. But I don't think it was like a clinic per se. I think it was like a home-based office. Um, but while she was trying to conceive, Diane was promiscuous and had a lot of flowers. And she contracted an STI, which is against the policy when you're being a surrogate. Um, and the, the couple found out, made a complaint, and then her little clinic was closed, was shut down. Shortly after, Diane, after that, Diane started a full-time job as a postal carrier. Around 1981, Diane met Robert, who went by Nick. They worked together at the post office. Um, Diane just had the surrogate baby, <coughs> excuse me, and she was working in the office area instead of carrying mail. And Nick also had an injury, so he was also in the office. And after working together for some time, they began an affair. While, while Diane was working in the office area, she didn't have to wear her postal carrier uniform. So she would come in wearing short shorts and a crop top with no bra that barely covered her breasts. So when she was putting mail in slots that were high, her breasts would peek out from under the shirt. And Nick said that that was really hard to resist. Nick and his wife were separated at the time, but he decided to give his marriage another chance and went back to his wife. Shortly after um, that, he continued to have an affair with Diane. Diane became obsessed with Nick and constantly urged him to leave his wife. Nick started to feel suffocated by Diane and broke things off several times, but Diane would usually win him back. Thinking that this would deter Diane from pursuing him further, Nick started to mention he wanted no part in being a daddy to her children. And he was being honest, he never really had an interest in having children. He allegedly had a vasectomy when he was 21. Eventually, Diane moved back to Oregon and Nick was relieved. But he still received phone calls and letters from Diane almost every day. Diane would often leave her children with Steve or her parents when she would go to work or when she would go out with friends or see lovers. And when she couldn't find a sitter, Diane still went out and she would leave six-year-old six Cheryl in charge. The children were often dressed in dirty clothes, they were underfed, neighbors would have the children over for supper or let the children stay with them when they would notice that Diane was not home. Shortly before her death, Cheryl reportedly told a neighbor of her grandparents that she didn't want to go home and that she was afraid of her mother. While investigators searched Diane's home, they found her diary and it was full of entries of Nick. Almost every day it mentioned, mentioned him or it was a love letter or a poem about him. It hardly mentioned her children. <coughs> Excuse me. She wrote everything in her diary, 
uh, entries were very detailed. They were thefts, what she did during that day, menstrual cycles, bill payments, Nick, Nick, <laughs> Nick. Um, and on the day of the shooting, the diary was blank. It just had the date written, May 19th, 1983. And she was at work that day. She was going to see her friend's acreage. Like there were things to write about, but she didn't write about anything. So it just seemed a little odd, considering her past entries were so detailed. Investigators found some bullet casings from a 22 caliber handgun at Diane's home. The same caliber was found at the scene of the shooting. When they, uh, when tested, the bullet casings from Diane's home and the casings at the shooting scene had the same markings, meaning that they came from the same gun. When they asked Diane earlier, she denied owning a gun, so it gave investigators another reason to be suspicious. Investigators, investigators needed to figure out a motive. Her not being emotional and being obsessed with an ex-lover was just not enough motive for them to torture with anything. So they had to find out why a mother would shoot her own children. While her children were in the hospital, almost immediately after the shooting, Diane Bege began giving media interviews. She would tell the story about what happened, about this shaggy-haired man, um, and then later she would be explaining her innocence. And at first the public was sympathetic to her. It was a young mother who got carjacked in the middle, you know, late at night and her kids were shot. Like, it's terrifying. And this was a smaller community. Things just didn't happen there. Um, but through interviews, Diane said things that a caring, nurturing mother just would not say. Like, in one interview, she said that people tell her she sure is lucky that she got shot in the arm. And Diane's response was that her kids were lucky and she would go on to say that she complained that she couldn't tie her shoes for months because she was wearing a cast. In another interview she describes driving to the hospital and she's saying how there, there was so much blood and she was trying to roll one of the children over and put in putting towels on their wounds and just these horrific things, but then she looks into the camera and smiles. Four days after the shooting, investigators asked Diane to film a reenactment of what happened. And Diane is seen laughing, giggling, fixing her hair and her makeup, making sure she's camera ready. First of all, I would not even, I would be like, ask me in a month or two because I cannot handle the, doing a reenactment. Like, ah. So after finding her diary, investigators knew that they had to talk to Nick. When he was interviewed, Nick revealed Diane's obsession to him and how she called and wrote him all the time and how she kept urging him to leave his wife. She, or... Nick said that he was also afraid that she might come and murder his wife. Investigators also found Diane had called Nick from the hospital the night of the shooting. 
Diane continually called Nick and he started recording conversations hoping that she would slip up and admit to shooting her kids, but she didn't. But the calls just weren't, you know, sad mom. She was, you know, calling from bars and trying to get him to come to Oregon and things like that. Yeah. After months of physical and mental therapy, Christy was able to start telling what had happened to her that night. Her version of the story did not involve seeing a shaggy-haired man. Yes, they did visit Diane's friend's acreage, and it was late when they left. It was almost dark. Christy remembered the car stopping on a dark road. She pretended to sleep, but watched her mother get out of the car, go to the trunk, and then she watched Diane come to the driver's door, lean in, as she, Diane shot Cheryl. She then shot Danny, and then Christy. Like, how terrifying would it have been for a child to even go through this? My goodness. There was a favorite song of Diane's, and she would play it over and over while driving in the car. And Christy remembers that song was always playing, debunking Diane's story of fake throwing the keys, because with that type of car, the stereo would have stopped once the keys were out of the ignition. The only motive investigators could come up with is that Diane wanted to be with Nick, and because Nick didn't want to be a daddy, she shot her children. Police arrested Diane in February of 1984, and the trial would begin in May. When Diane was arrested, she was five months pregnant. She seduced a man who was on her postal route. When the song that I mentioned earlier, that Diane's favorite song, when it played in the courtroom, Diane was dancing in her chair, tapping her pen, and it unnerved the spectators as well as the jurors. If something horrific happened, yeah, like, I don't want to even hear that song. If I hear it, um, yeah, like, I'm turning that song off, I just don't want to hear it. And I could not imagine somebody just dancing in their chair and loving, love hearing that song. <clears throat> Christy, who was nine at the time, bravely took the stand and she told the jury that her mother shot her and her siblings. Nick also took the stand telling of how Diane was obsessed with him. A witness who came across Diane's car on Old Mo Mohawk Road that night also testified and he said that he had slowed down to see if they needed any help, uh, but her car was driving so slow, his speedometer was not even registering. He drove along the car for a bit, but they didn't show that they needed help, so he just drove away. Again, this is what debunked Diane's claim that she had raced to the hospital. Investigators were familiar with that road, um, and they knew that it, from Old Mohawk, Mohawk Road to the hospital took about two minutes. It took Diane over 20 minutes to get to the hospital. Diane also took the stand to testify on her behalf. Um, she claimed that her father was really strict and that she was taught not to show emotion 
so that's why she didn't react very much at the hospital. She also said that she was sexually abused by her father, which she later recanted. She said she wasn't obsessed with Nick, that he was just too much to deal with. He couldn't make up his mind. He wants to be with me. He doesn't want to be with me. Um, so, and she never cared enough about a man to want to hurt hurt her children. Uh, Diane was eight months pregnant, and she would lovingly rub her belly while testifying, and she would tell the jury of how much she loved her children, and although at times she wasn't the best mom, but she loved them and she really missed them. While being cross-examined, she would snap back at the prosecutor, roll her eyes, or glare, and it was just a very different complete opposite reaction from the belly-rubbing mom who missed her children. After a six-week trial, the jury of nine men and, or sorry, the jury of nine women and three men deliberated for 36 hours before returning its, I can't talk, sorry. They returned with a unanimous verdict. Diane was found guilty. She gave birth 10 days after the conviction, and when she came back for sentencing, she was laughing and chatting and fixing her makeup. She was sentenced to life plus 50 years. Three years into her sentence, Diane managed to escape the Oregon prison by scaling an 18-foot razor wire fence. Almost two weeks later, after a 14-state manhunt, she was found just a few blocks from the prison in the home of another inmate's husband, and she was there the whole time. She claimed she had to escape prison because she knew who the real killer was, and she had to go and find them. But again, she was at this inmate's husband's home for the two weeks. Uh, So she was sentenced to an additional five years in prison for her escape. She was transported to a New Jersey prison, but after another attempted escape, um, I I heard she was dating a helicopter pilot and she was trying to convince him to land on the roof of the prison. And after repeatedly asking him, like, when are you going to do this? When are you going to do Then he reported it to authorities. And then Diane was transported to a high-security facility in California, where she remains today. Over the years, Diane has maintained her innocence, but her story always changes. She's constantly changing her story. Um, it goes from the shaggy-haired man to somebody who knew her by name, to hijackers, to corrupt cops, drug dealers, and now the latest was a CIA agent. In 2008, after 25 years of being in prison, Diane was eligible for parole, and the parole board denied her request. She was eligible again in 2010, but it was denied as well and she would not be eligible for parole until 2021. Um, At the 2008 parole hearing, 
Diane stated the reason that she should be paroled is to help her elderly parents. Her parents are elderly. She needs to be there for them. She needs to help them out. Uh, when it was denied, the parole board said not once did she ever mention seeing her children or being with her children. And Diane's response was, well, why should I want to see them when they never come to see me? So at this time, um, she hasn't applied for parole again, but she maintains her innocence and hopes that law enforcement finds the actual killer. The baby Diane was pregnant with during the trial was adopted by another family. In 2010, Becky, who's now an adult, uh, she shared her story about finding out who her birth mother was and how she wondered if she had that evil in her. She went on shows like 2020, The Oprah Winfrey Show, and more recently, um, she was on the Happy Face Presents Two-Face podcast where she is trying to find her birth father. In 1984, Christy and Danny were adopted by one of the prosecutors of the case. They have no contact with Diane, but when Christy turned 18, she did go to the prison to visit Diane to get answers to find out why Diane had shot them, and Diane claimed her innocence. Something, you know, Christy would say, like, I was there, I know you did it, and Diana would say, they've brainwashed you, they've turned you against me, and just things like that. So I think Christy just was like, you're never going to admit to it, so I'm just never going to come and visit you. Christy and Danny have both graduated college. Uh, Christy is married, and um, she had a baby boy in 2015, so he's almost an adult now. Danny is a computer whiz, and he's still partially paralyzed. They have grown up in a very happy home. In 1987, uh, author Anne Rule wrote a book called Small Sacrifices. And um, I believe it was one of the first true crime books that I read. And I've read several more of Anne Rule's books. She was my, my favorite true crime author. Um, in 1987, Small Sacrifices, the book, was adapted into a TV movie starring Farrah Fawcett, and that was also filmed in my home city of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I would love to say that I met her, but unfortunately I did not. Um, names in that TV movie have been changed, and the events were a little dramatized, but it, it was a good movie. And... Um, Besides for a faucet being in it, Emily Perkins, you might know her from Ginger Snaps. Um, she plays the Christie character and was amazing in the movie. Just absolutely, really, really well done. Um, so yeah, that is it for this podcast. One of the this was one of the first stories that I remember reading and seeing seeing her interviews and just you can even go online and they have I think on YouTube they have some of her interviews just I don't know I to me it was just unbelievable and it's still unbelievable that she just doesn't fast up and say yes I did this and but she 
like I said, <laughs> and crazy, but I guess that's why I like true crime, trying to figure out why people do these crazy things. And I'm very glad that Cher, uh, that Christy and Danny grew up in a very happy, loving home. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.